The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning. Happy New Year. Glad you're worshiping with us today. Hey, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors and want to welcome those of you that are here in the sanctuary. Welcome the folks online, the, the people we have out on the overflow first Sunday of 2022. We're really glad that you're here. It looks like you survived the holidays Kids are back to school tomorrow, back to normal. Looking forward to that myself. Hey, we, uh, we had taken a pause for five weeks here over kind of the, the Christmas break to do a special sermon series. We called it Giving the Greatest Gift. We kind of looked at the book of, of Luke and, and the call uh, of God on his church to be, to be uh, uh, missional uh, in our community. And so we had this five weeks where we looked at that and, and uh, we had pushed pause on our series in Mark back in November. Today we're picking Mark back up again. We're going to be in Mark Chapter 6, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles if you brought one or your app to Mark chapter 6. We're going to read the first 13 verses today. Uh, we, we had t- taken about 11 weeks to journey through the first five chapters of Mark, starting back in September. And I kind of want to just remind us a little bit about where we've been in Mark up to this point. We're calling this series Son of God, Suffering Servant. We're going to be kind of journeying through Mark through the remainder of, of uh of winter and spring, uh, looking forward to the things we're going to learn as we continue to unpack this book. But, but up to this point in Mark's gospel, we were introduced initially at the beginning of the gospel to John the Baptist, and, and he prepared a way for Jesus, and then Jesus came, um, and he, uh, was, he was baptized, and then he, he was led out into the desert by the Spirit, and he was tempted by Satan, and then Jesus overcame Satan in the desert. This is all the first chapter of Mark, and then Jesus comes to Galilee, and he begins to this ministry uh, of proclamation. Um, he begins the ministry of healing. Um, Jesus is uh, casting out demons and we're seeing his authority. And the first chapter of Mark is just packed with activity. And then in the middle of it, we see Jesus withdrawing to a quiet place where he meets with the Father and he prays. And, and then he travels throughout Galilee. And we see Jesus continuing this, this ministry of miracles. His fame grows. And, and there's this increased confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities. And, and it's getting heated. And by chapter 3 or so, they are already plotting how they can destroy Jesus. And then, and then Christ calls uh, his 12 disciples. He starts to teach in parable. And then as we got halfway through chapter 4, there was kind of the shift in, we began to see these, these, these ever-increasing miracles that display the power of Jesus. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee after he had preached a long day, and a, a mighty wind came down. The waves were crashing over the boat. The disciples thought they were going to drown. And Jesus stands up and he calms the storm with, with a handful of words, peace, be still. We see his power over nature. Then he goes in chapter 5 to the Gerasenes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he is confronted by a man who's demonically possessed with the legion of demons, and Jesus casts these demons out in an incredible display of power over the demoniacs. And then Jesus comes back across the Sea of Galilee towards the end of chapter 5, and a woman with, uh, with the issue of, of blood, she's been hemorrhaging, she just touches the garment of Jesus, he feels power leave from him, and he turns around, and he forgives of her, of her sins, and she is healed. And then lastly, at the end of chapter 5, Jairus comes to Jesus and says, and my daughter is sick and she is dying, and then his daughter dies, and then everyone thinks it's too late, Jesus can't do anything about it because this little girl is dead, she was 12 years old. But then Jesus enters the home of Jairus and he heals and raises this little girl from death to life. And so we see the ever-increasing power of Jesus in Mark's gospel. And all of that leads us up to today's text. The, the, this increasing fame of Jesus, the increasing power of Jesus. We're getting to see him for who he really is. And then we pick up in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Let's read the first 13 verses. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. Verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them, 
to take nothing of their, uh, for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to, put on, and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whoever, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. We're going to look at these 13 verses today. and We're going to see four movements. And I want us to settle really in on the third movement of the text. We're going to see four things. One, we're going to see Jesus marveling at unbelief in Nazareth in the first six verses. And then we're going to move into the, the second half of the text. And we're going to see Jesus giving three things. We're going to see Jesus giving authority to those who are sent. We're going to see Jesus giving instructions to those who are sent. And lastly, we're going to see Jesus giving success to those who are sent. Those are the, 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 the four movements we're going to see. We're going to settle in on the instructions of Jesus. This is the real practical part of today's passage. Ultimately, what we're going to see here is that Jesus is fighting unbelief through the faithfulness of true believers. This is what I think the, the essence of the text is saying. These 13 verses collectively are saying that, that Jesus fights unbelief through the faithfulness of true believers, the sent out ones. Pray with me. Father, we do invite you to meet us today in this place. God, thank you for the privilege that we can gather freely and we can, we can fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. We can lift our voices and our hearts and our minds to you as worship today, Lord, our very lives as, as an act of worship. God, thank you for your word. God, this is your word, your living word. It is for us. God, may we handle it with care and uh, gentleness today, God, as we, as we listen to your very words, as we, as we preach these words over us today. God, pierce our hearts. God, help us understand what it is you want us to hear today and how it is you want us to respond to you in faith and in obedience. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys ever heard of the crab mentality about how, like, if there's one crab in a bucket, it can climb out and, and get, get free and be safe? But if there's multiple crabs in a bucket, they will not let one of their own climb out. Have you guys ever heard of this, this phenomenon? Uh, I was reading about that this week, and I've known about this, but, but a crab placed alone in the bucket will easily climb out and escape, this, this, this one website said. But when you place it in with a few of its mates, this interesting phenomenon occurs. One at a time, as crabs try to escape, other crabs will pull them back down to their misery and to the group's collective demise. So I knew this was a phenomenon, and when my, my oldest daughter, Abigail, was becoming an adolescent where teen groups and peer groups and friend groups became kind of a big deal, I, I would talk to her about, watch out for the crabs in your midst. There's going to be peers, friends, teammates who are going to want to pull you down into their misery. They're going to want to see you fail. They're going to try to fight against your success at all costs. And, and I was always kind of using this analogy to tell her to be careful. don't think it actually sunk in with her, but I would be off and out and about, and I would see like a, a, a sculpture of a crab or, a, or like a, a painting of a crab or like a little figurine of a crab for like a bath toy. And I would text a picture of it to my daughter, like, remember. And she was just thought it was so weird that I was always reminding her that there are people who are absolutely committed to your demise. Be careful, be aware of them. When we look at, at Nazareth today, we see Jesus coming to his own. It's like there are a bunch of crabs in the bottom of this bucket who are just desperate to pull Jesus down and not allow him to, to rise. And I think about that in our own lives. I think about you know, when you are, there's a phrase that says familiarity breeds contempt. Have you ever heard of that phrase? And, and when you are known, that's one of the great dangers of being known, right? One of the great dangers of being known and of being vulnerable with people is that they know the, the best parts about you, but they also know the worst parts about you. And sometimes if people know the, your, the worst parts about you, they know your failures, they know your weaknesses, they know your family history, that can be weaponized. And my guess is that there's some of us in this room who've been, who've been deeply wounded when people have weaponized our own failures or our own family histories against us in an attempt to pull us down, to keep us in our place. When we reveal intimate parts about who we are with others, we can either experience liberating grace or we can experience crushing, condemning, finger-pointing. The interesting thing about Jesus was that they, they had no charge against him. He was perfect. 
And yet we see these men and women in Nazareth desperately trying to pull Jesus down. They begin to go to his family, his profession, anything they can to try to destroy him and pull him down. So as we look here a little more intently at these, at these 13 verses, I want us to kind of just, I'm just going to orient you to what's happening here. This is the second time Jesus went back to Nazareth, his hometown. Now the first time in in Mark's gospel, but if you look at Luke's gospel, at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus entering to Nazareth. In fact, it was in synagogue in Nazareth that Jesus begun his public ministry. We, we actually read this text a few weeks ago in our other sermon series. And Jesus went into synagogue and he opened up the prophet or the scroll of Isaiah and he quoted from the prophet Isaiah and then Jesus made a, a claim, a messianic claim. He claimed to be the fulfilled promise of God, the, the promised one, the Savior, the Messiah. And then he sat down and the people in the synagogue lost their minds, Luke tells us. Luke 4.29 tells us, after Jesus made this proclamation at the beginning of his ministry, they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to a, uh, the, the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down off a cliff. They wanted to kill Jesus. But now, uh, this is the second time Jesus would have visited Nazareth and some things have changed since that first visit. Uh, those who are, who are most familiar with Jesus uh, really struggled to see him for who he was, but, but some things have changed since Jesus' last visit there. Number one, it's interesting when you think about how, how his own townspeople tried to throw him off the cliff, but, but if you go back in, in chapter 3 of Mark that we studied earlier this fall, the, the mother and brothers of Jesus visited him in Capernaum. Do you remember this? The, the people that were most familiar with him just didn't get him. And so there's a scene in Mark chapter 3 where the mother and brothers of Jesus come down to Capernaum, and the Bible says that they, they, um, that they thought he was out of his mind, and they were going to try to rescue him or hijack him or kidnap him and bring him back to Nazareth because they were, they were worried about him, they were afraid for his well-being. They just simply didn't get him. And so here's Jesus going back into Nazareth, his hometown, and I just think of the humanity of Jesus, the heart of Jesus. It had to be wounded that those who knew him best rejected him and didn't understand him. One, one preacher put it this way. They said, he was rejected by his blood brothers and the very townspeople who had loved and been loved, who had loved him and who had loved him as a child and as a man. Jesus wanted to minister to them. So, but the difference between the first visit where they tried to throw him off a cliff and now was that the reputation of Jesus probably preceded him. Because before he was just launching his public ministry, but here in Mark chapter 6, we're coming off the heels of these powerful signs and wonders and miracles of Jesus. Authority over nature. He speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey him. Casting out legions of demons into a herd of pigs. Uh, healing a woman who had, who had suffered with hemorrhaging for 12 years. Raising a, a dead child to life. And so now Jesus enters Nazareth. And this time he has disciples with him. He's clearly presenting himself as a rabbi with students as he enters this town. It would have been a powerful moment. But as he goes there, maybe there's hope in his heart that the people of his hometown are going to get it. They're going to soften their heart. They're going to turn to him. They're going to listen to his message. But we see very early on that, it, that it, they, it goes bad. And there's a cold response. And this is the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus then, as he looks at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, he marvels at their unbelief. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He, he went away from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So clearly, he's just wanting people to recognize that he is a rabbi. He's got students, and he's teaching. He's presenting himself as a teacher among his hometown folk. Verse, second part of verse 2 says that many heard him. Uh, they were astonished, and they said, where does this man get these things? And so when they first see Jesus, they're, they're astonished. That word just simply means they, they, they were amazed. They were struck with astonishment at what, what they saw is they first encountered Jesus on that Sabbath in synagogue. And they had only ever known Jesus, could only ever conceive of Jesus in terms of his humanity. And so as they're looking at Jesus and like he's doing and saying amazing things, they're, they're perplexed, they're amazed, they're astonished. They say, where did this man get these things? Because they knew him. They knew that he was the son of Joseph. He was a carpenter and they knew he hadn't gone off for formal education or formal training. He was just a town's guy. He was a blue-collar guy, and yet Jesus is doing some amazing things, and, and they're saying to themselves, where did, where did the man get these things? The, this wisdom and this power that he's demonstrating has to come from somewhere, but from where, they're wondering. Isn't this just the boy that we watched grow up in our midst? 
I read a commentator this week who said, until he began his ministry, the, the deity of Jesus was so hidden that even people in his hometown who had known him well since childhood, they had no idea that he was also fully God. And so now here's Jesus in the presence of those who know him and who know his family. They're looking at him cross-eyed, knowing he doesn't have formal education or formal training, knowing that he's just a common laborer, and yet he speaks with authority and he ministers in power. The second part of verse 2. What's the wisdom given to him, they ask? How do such mighty works, how are such mighty works done by his hands? So they're astonished by two things, according to those questions, his wisdom and his mighty works. So he's clearly got a wisdom beyond what they can understand. He's clearly doing mighty works. But then they continue to ask questions, and we see their astonishment turn to something else. They ask a couple more questions. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Is, are not his sisters here with us? And so what they begin to do is they begin to try to tear Jesus down. They're like crabs pulling Jesus down in the bottom of the boat. Oh yeah, mighty works. Wow, tremendous wisdom. Where did he get all this? But wait a second. He's the son of a carpenter. And his mom, he's the mother of Mary. In other words, what they're saying to Jesus is that uh, you are a common laborer with nothing about you that should make you seem important or special. So they're putting him in his place. They're essentially saying to Jesus, know your place. You're not a rabbi. You are a blue-collar guy from the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, You're not better than any of us here in this town. Let us remind you of how insignificant you are before you get too big for your britches. And then they say he is the son of Mary. And this was a cheap shot. It was customary in, in Jewish custom When you refer to a son, you always refer to him in relationship with his father's name. Even if his father was deceased, he was a son of, and they would mention the male name. But by referring to Jesus as the son of Mary, they are in effect calling his mother a whore. And they're calling Jesus illegitimate offspring. These were people who had grown up with Jesus. They're using all the intimate ammunition they can. They're weaponizing everything they know about Jesus, and they're hurling it against him, using their intimate knowledge in the most disrespectful and hurtful ways imaginable. And over the course of their question asking, they go from a place of astonishment, then we read in verse 3 that they, they are now taking offense at Jesus. How dare you come in here with authority and with wisdom and with power, and they take offense. They find a way to be offended by the rise of Jesus. They think to themselves, who does he think he is? He doesn't, he doesn't, have anything special that would allow him to act. He's the son of a carpenter. He, he's, his mom was pregnant out of wedlock. There's no way he does all this power uh, and does all of these mighty, mighty works by the power of God. He, he must be in cahoots with the devil. Yeah, I think of that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, and I think about what it was like. I grew up in a, in a small town, a very small town where on one hand it was pretty cool because everybody knew everybody. That was kind of neat. Like I knew every single kid that went to my high school. There were 65 kids in my high school, public school. I knew every single kid, whether they were a freshman or a senior. Um, And that was, there was a really, part of that was nice. But the, uh, the part of living in a small town, for those of you that hail from a small town that's not so nice, is that everybody knows everything about everybody. And they can weaponize that against you. It was so bad. There was a lady in my hometown who was like the chief gossip. And I would honestly, like if I was speeding through town, my mom would know before I got home because she would call my mother and tell her. You could get away with nothing. And then if you, uh, you know, God forbid you come from a family that's got some, some challenges, as my family did. And I was the youngest of all my siblings, and some of my siblings had made some poor decisions, and, and uh, they had some red, you know, scarlet letters etched on their forehead, figurative scarlet letters. Well, just by proxy, those scarlet letters fell on me. And I remember when I got ready to, you know, graduate from high school and go to college, the college I picked, I honestly, like, the primary deciding factor for me choosing the college I did was that it was the furthest away from my hometown, 900 miles away. No one there would know any of the, the dirty secrets that I felt were used against me in my childhood. So I knew that was... The, the nature of hometowns, familiarity breeds contempt, or you're never able to outrun or outlive your mistakes. And then years later, I'm a high school teacher and coach, and I was teaching in Idaho, and I was a wrestling coach, and we ended up going to this wrestling tournament in Wendell, Idaho. 
It's a huge tournament. Teams from all over Idaho were at this tournament. It's packed. And like the 172-pounders or whatever, the 171-pounders were wrestling. And there's this, this kind of farm boy from Wendell and his singlet goes out there. He looks pretty tough. He's getting ready to wrestle. And, and then his opponent comes up. And his opponent's jacked, muscular, strong, ripped. And it's a girl. And she comes out there. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And this kid from Wendell starts wrestling this girl from, I can't remember where she was from. And she manhandles him. Pardon the pun. I'm not sure if that's a if woman handles him. I don't know what I would say there, but she, she begins to just beat this poor kid up. And I'm watching as hundreds of townspeople from Wendell are watching this poor kid get turned and pinned in front of a home crowd. And I'm from a small town. I thought, oh, that poor kid. Uh, he could go on to become the president of the United States of America. He could solve world hunger. He could figure out cold fusion. But in Wendell, Idaho, he'll always be the kid that got pinned by a girl. That's just how it is in small towns. And I see Jesus in his hometown, and they are just, he is little Jesus. He's the kid they saw who grew up in the home of Joseph and Mary, and there's no way they're going to see him for what he really is. And in all this peering and all these unbelieving eyes that are looking upon Jesus with contempt, Jesus sees their hard hearts. He sees the pitiful spiritual condition of his peers. Verse 4, verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. This was a well-known saying. And Jesus, he's saying, you know, just like, just like the prophets were rejected by Israelites, Jesus is now being rejected by his own, his own people. And, and this is a foreshadowing of the ultimate rejection we're going to see uh, in the city of Jerusalem a few years out where, where the people of Israel are going to shout, crucify him, and Jesus is going to be led out of the city and nailed into a Roman torturing device. So as a result of this rampant unbelief and this rampant rejection, the last couple of verses here uh, in our section is he, he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And then verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. If you want to circle, underline that phrase. He marveled because of their unbelief. Scripture shows us that Jesus was amazed and he marveled at both faith and he marveled at unbelief. If you go to like Matthew chapter 8, there is this centurion who had a sick servant and he's talking with Jesus and, Jesus, and it says of Jesus that when he heard the faith of the centurion, he marveled and he says there's no one in all of Israel with a greater faith than this guy. So, so there's, there's, on one hand, Jesus can marvel at great faith, but here in our text, we got the other end of the, the spectrum. Jesus looks at the unbelief of his fellow Nazarenes, he marvels at their unbelief, and he can do no mighty work, the text tells us. In other words, unbelief hinders God's power. I like how one scholar put it. He said, he said let me be clear. Jesus could, do, uh, Jesus could not do miracles because he would not do miracles. Omnipotence is not omnipotence if it is bounded by anything but its own will. Jesus was morally compelled to not show his power among his unbelieving Nazarenes. In Matthew's account, he adds this little commentary of this same event. Matthew says that he did, he did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. And so we see that unbelief robs uh, the church of its power. These people had an opportunity to have belief, but their unbelief just, it, it robbed the church of, of power. Jesus could do no mighty works there. I'm reminded of what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so it is both faith and unbelief that cause Jesus to marvel. Man, I think about that for me and for you and for us here today. May, may it be our expectant faith which caused Jesus to marvel, which causes Jesus to marvel. In his account of the hard-hearted unbelief of the Nazarenes, uh, we are seeing how bleak a picture, how difficult how hard it can be to minister among unbelieving people. It's not easy. It's challenging. And then in light of that, Jesus turns his focus towards other villages, and he turns his focus towards the further development of the disciples. Here's the second thing I'd want you to write down. Now we see in light of what they experienced in Nazareth, this is sort of a setup for the second half of our text. Jesus then gives authority to those sent. Jesus gives authority to those being sent out. Look at verse 6 and 7. He went out among the villages teaching and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
So Jesus is, is sending them out. Now, is he sending them out because it's a response to the rejection he received in Nazareth? Or is he sending them out because he wants to extend the, the, the teaching ministry he has now among the, the villages in Galilee? Not sure which. But regardless of what the motivation for Jesus choosing this time to send out his disciples, he's sending them out in groups of two. So there's like six little mini mission trips happening in Galilee as these men, two by two, are being sent out to these towns and these villages. And they, they are partnering together and they have the very authority of Jesus in the work that they're doing. And it makes sense to send them out in groups of two. I mean, someone who's alone is more vulnerable, but to go out in groups of two, there's a partnership, there's a companionship. One can help when the other's weak. One can lift the other one up when he falls down. But there's also not just a practical benefit of being sent out two by two. Being sent into, like, a Jewish audience, the witnesses of two was considered trustworthy and true. And so the fact that there were two, it kind of aligns with kind of the Old Testament legal system where, where the testimony is to be established by the mouth of two witnesses. So there are two men entering these villages and these towns, and, and they're both uh, giving testimony to the teachings of Jesus, and it would have validated their message. And so armed with this message of truth, Jesus commissions, and he empowers, and he sends them out as his representatives. They're not rogue itinerant preachers. These are men under the authority of Jesus, given the, the power of Jesus to be the representative of Jesus to the villages in the region. And, the, and we begin to see the, the, the kind of the message of our passage today, that, that Jesus fights faithless unbelief through those with faithful belief. These are men who are disciples of Jesus being sent out as, as believers into an unbelieving world. And he doesn't descend them blindly. Jesus has been preparing them since he called them to be his disciples, called them to be fishers of men. They'd seen Jesus do what Jesus does, heal the sick, uh, uh, teach with authority, and they, they've observed and they've learned and they've taken notes, and now this is their time. He said from day one they would become fishers of men, and now they're being sent out, and they can put their hand to the work that they, that they signed up for at the very beginning. And he sends them out equipped with authority, but then he gives them instructions. And here's where I want us to, to kind of really think about how, how this text applies to our life as we think about the instructions that Jesus gave them then. How might these instructions inform the way we as believers and we as a church think today? Because we see that Jesus is fighting unbelief through the faithfulness of true believers. And it wasn't going to be easy. It's hard work. Their experience in, in Nazareth revealed that, that doing work among unbelievers can be brutal. It can be hard. It can be painful. But here we see these three instructions. And here's the, the third thing I would encourage you to write down. There's three points underneath this. We see Jesus giving instructions to those sent. And the first instruction he gives is he tells these, these men to embrace dependence. He tells these men to embrace dependence. Look at verses 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to, and to not put on two tunics. So Jesus sends these poor souls out, these 12 guys, two by two, purposefully under-resourced. Why would he do that? Why, why would Jesus send them out with just, with just the shoes on their feet, the, the walking stick in their hand, and the clothes on their back, nothing else? Why would he do that? Well, he was purposefully depriving them of any temptation towards self-security or towards self-sufficiency. They weren't to go out there and rely on what they had to offer. They were to go out there and rely on the God who had sent them and experience him meeting them in the, in the midst of their dependence. They are to embrace dependence. He left no room for plan B, no fallback plan, no contingency plan, no, no uh, ejection seat, no rainy day fun, no panic button, no worst case scenario option. In fact, he gave them no food, not to have bread, no bags to carry their stuff, uh, no, no money to bail themselves out if things go bad, no extra tunic for warmth and protection. They got shoes and a walking stick and the clothes on their back. I love how one preacher puts it. One preacher says, the minimum of provisions were meant to call out the maximum faith. If they went out there with all the food in the world, all the money in the world, all the stuff they needed, would they even need to operate in faith? If they had a trailer of all their stuff behind them on the mission field, they wouldn't need to even pray for their daily bread. They wouldn't need to live dependent. They could be totally independent and self-sufficient. And that's exactly what Jesus is pushing up against here. So to go out and embrace dependence, it's hard. It should not, and it cannot be done alone. And I think about us in our current context. I mean, we live in an extremely well-off, 
opulent, well-resourced society. And as I read this passage, just in my humanness, I'm thinking of these guys in the first century being sent out with nothing but the, the clothes that they wear. I just almost, if I'm just honest from my human perspective, it just feels foolish. It's like, why would you even do that? Isn't that, isn't that foolish? Isn't that dangerous? Like, why? I remember a couple years ago, or many years ago, when I was a pastor in Wisconsin, the, the, I got invited by the, the, uh, one of the heads of our denomination to go to this lunch with some guy I'd never met. He was a, a pastor from India. I didn't know anything about this guy. And so we get to this lunch, and we begin to learn about this guy. He's a really cool guy. He's got a, a powerful ministry among uh, the untouchables. So in India, there's the caste system, and there are people on the lower part of the caste who are considered untouchable. And, and where the gospel is flourishing and exploding in India is among these people who are society's rejects. They're the outcasts. They, they live in shame because of their, spa- their, their place in society. And so when the gospel is shared among these people group, it's, it's explode. it explodes. And I met this, this, this pastor, this missionary from India, and he had an incredible testimony. He was born in, a, in the Banjera tribe and he was an untouchable. And, and some doctor who was a Christian uh, helped him heal his, his broken leg when he's a boy and touched him and it marveled him that this man dared to touch him. And so he went on to become a Christian missionary and he had orphanages and churches and this, this massive ministry all across India. And I was just captivated hearing him tell his story. And as he was telling the story, I remember him saying that that morning they had received a phone call that one of their orphanages with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids had run out of food. And I'm like, what? Are you going to feed the, like, and I was like, I'm starting to problem solve. How are we going to get food? And, 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 and as I was asking him, like, what would you do? Just as a matter of fact, if you and I were to say, I went down to the grocery store and bought a bunch of groceries, he said, well, I, I prayed. And I asked God to provide. Like, duh. Like, we're Christians. Like, that's what we're called to pray for our daily bread. And I just remember being so convicted by that. And I thought, you know, I've never had to pray for my daily bread, ever. It's always, I've always had weeks and months of food in my fridge my whole life. I don't know what it is to live independence, to live fully dependent. Because I, and so I, when I lived in Milwaukee, we, we did, our, our church was in, a, was in an urban area that was compromised economically. And, and so the local schools were like 100% free and reduced lunches. And it was a, an, a quasi inner city neighborhood with lots of challenge. And, and, and I remember talking to some of my friends who planted in like in suburbs or in, in rural communities and they're like, oh, it's got to be so hard to do ministry in the city. Uh, you just got to be feel like doors being slammed in your face everywhere. And I'm like, no, because there's real need here. The, the, people's spiritual depravity, they wear it very real on the outside. When, when they're desperate because they have felt needs that are pressing and urgent. And so the doors are being opened for us to enter into a relationship to, to provide felt need that we can talk about spiritual need. And I actually think ministering in affluent, well-off communities is much harder because it's really hard to convince someone with a seven-figure retirement account in a three-car garage and a 4,000-square-foot home that they need Jesus. We don't know what it means to embrace dependence because we don't have to. And when we start to have little things press up against us like vaccine mandates and, and governmental power, we lose our minds because we're having power taken from us and we don't like it. And I'm, I'm not saying there's not a reason to have a conversation about that, but what I'm saying is, like, do we know what it really means to embrace dependence? Because the whole idea of our faith is a faith of dependence. We need a Savior. And by definition, Jesus is our Savior. And if you need a Savior, then you don't have anything to offer in that equation. You are fully dependent on the one who saves to save you. The person who's drowning doesn't have any power. They're just desperate for the one with power to do something about their powerlessness. See, so when you're being saved, you have to embrace dependence because that's your only hope. And so spiritually speaking, we are dependent people day, every single day. And then, and then God in his grace, he's infused us into a community, uh, the body of Christ, where we are, made, uh, we, we are made with limitations, all of us. Some of us have gifts, but for the gifts we have, there are many, many, many gifts we don't have, which means I need to rely on my brother or my sister in Christ. I need to be interdependent on them that we can flourish and be the full body of Christ and be his hands and feet in the world around us. He's made us dependent creatures. He said to Adam in the Garden of Eden, it is not good for man to be alone. We need one another. Even our prayer lives, I've heard our prayer lives described as declarations of dependence. When we fall on our knees before a holy God and we lift up our prayers, we are declaring our dependence on him. God, I need you to intervene in my life, to do something in my life, to, to do, do only you can do. And so the first instruction that Jesus gives to these disciples, he's like, I'm going to take every worldly comfort you have. All you're going to have is the clothes on your back so you know what it means 
to be fully and entirely dependent on me. It was his gift to give them a physical representation of their spiritual reality. And that's what it means for you and I to embrace dependence. Secondly, we see Jesus here. He gives an instruction for them to embrace discomfort. Not only embrace, uh, not only to embrace um, dependency, but to embrace discomfort. Look at verse 10. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So the temptation would have been this. They go to a town. The town receives them. The first person to offer a house will say, hey, come stay with us. So they go stay at the house. It's maybe the, the economically disadvantaged family who doesn't have a spare bedroom. So they're sleeping on the living room floor where the dog is licking their face in the morning. They have their first session of ministry in town. Someone who's well off who lives in the hills outside of town says, actually, come stay at my house. I have a spare bedroom, an extra bathroom. I'll give you my fancy car. And they would be very tempted to choose comfort over discomfort and to go pursue the easy path. And so Jesus is saying, don't do that. When you go into a town and someone offers you hospitality, no matter how uncomfortable it may be, you stay there. Because what can happen if we start to let our, our, our Jesus is, is, is highlighting this reality of the human condition, if we start to let our appetites, if we, if, if we put our appetites in the driver's seat, that is, a, that is a slippery slope to idol worship and to turning our backs entirely on Jesus. So he gives them instructions to embrace discomfort. The whole entire Christian life is an invitation to embrace discomfort. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16 to his disciples? He told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The invitation of Jesus to the disciple on this side of the glory is an invitation to discomfort. To deny yourself is extremely uncomfortable. To take up a cross is the definition of discomfort. To follow Jesus in a world that has roundly rejected him, it's uncomfortable. Think about how Jesus' audience would have understood this command. This is a first century audience under the oppression of the Roman Empire. What was a cross to them? We say things like now, oh, cable's out for the day. Guess that's the cross I have to bear. Oh, no parking spaces close to the front of the store. That's my cross. I guess I'll bear it today. No, no. If you're a first century audience and you heard Jesus tell them to follow me, you have to take up your cross. A cross, in their mind, was one thing. It was a Roman torturing device intended to to bring uh, excruciating pain and death. It was an invitation to massive discomfort. And that's what it meant to follow Jesus. It was a call to give up their very lives. Here's the problem. Jesus knows it and we know it. When comfort becomes primary in our life, if that's the primary thing that drives our decision making in the way we live our life, when comfort becomes primary, Jesus becomes secondary and he becomes an accessory to our life like earrings or a pair of shoes. And our religion becomes useless. I look at the desert father's who fled into the deserts after Constantine became a Christian and the, the, the Christian faith became the official religion of the Roman Empire and all persecution stopped, all discomfort ceased. Now suddenly the church was flooded with massive resource and beautiful opulent cathedrals around the world and the church that had only ever known persecution and discomfort was lost. Like, what do we do? How do we live in a world where discomfort isn't a part of our everyday reality as, as Christians when we have everything we could ever want and then something? And that's when the monastic movement started. That's when St. Anthony and, and, the, and the first desert fathers went out to the desert and they said, we need to deprive ourselves. We need to experience discomfort because this is what helps our faith thrive. And the monk movement was born. In the core values of silence and solitude and prayer, purposeful uh, uh, abstinence from indulgence was a part of a core value that kind of led the church in the third and fourth and fifth centuries. If we're not careful, our appetites can take the driver's seat in our lives. And our primary pursuit is no longer the glory of God or the advancement of his kingdom or the evangelization of the unbelieving world. The primary ethic that drives us can be our hungers and our thirsts. And those can become our pursuits. Comfort can become our primary motivator. If we're not uncomfortable, even in America in 2021 and 2022, if we're not uncomfortable on a regular basis as a follower of Jesus, something is wrong. If we're not experiencing discomfort in our lives because the world hates Jesus 
And Jesus said, remember, when they hate you, they hated me first. If I'm not experiencing discomfort in my pursuit of Jesus on a regular basis, honestly, I think there's, it's time to examine my faith and ask God if I'm living as he would have me to live. Christ is not an accessory to the Christian life. He is our all in all, or he is nothing. So Jesus tells these apostles, these disciples, embrace dependence, embrace discomfort, and then the third instruction he gives them is to reject worldliness. The third instruction he gives them is to reject worldliness. Look at verse 11 here. And this is, I'll unpack this here in a second. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense now, but I'll, I'll give you the cultural context here. He says, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so what does it mean to shake off the dust on your feet? Uh, I, one scholar puts it this way, and I, I couldn't word it better myself. So I'm just going to read what this guy writes. It was customary for pious Jews who had traveled abroad to carefully shake the dust of alien lands from their feet and clothing. This act disassociated them from the pollution of those pagan lands and the judgment that was to come upon them. The same action by the apostles symbolically declared a hostile village to be pagan. And so, so as they are being sent out two by two, if they go into a town to share the message of Jesus, and if the village rejects them roundly or holistically, uh, they are rejecting Jesus himself. And so the disciples are to kick the dust of that town off their shoes, not as a vindictive sort of in-your-face move of anger to call down vengeance from God. It was meant to awaken something in the hearts and the minds of those who were rejecting the message. It was actually an act of compassion. It wasn't the, the disciples, uh, you know, uh, walking away in anger and sort of giving the finger to the city. No, it was the disciples saying, you better be very careful what you reject here because your soul depends on the way in which you receive this message. It was a merciful prophetic act designed to make people think deeply about their spiritual condition, one person writes. So to shake off their dust on the outside of the, the village has just rejected them, to shake the dust off their sandals, it was designed to provoke thought. It was designed to provoke thought on part of the rejectors. And they had to say, wait a second. I think about this when it comes to even church discipline. And we don't know a whole lot about church discipline these days. But church discipline is an act of love. And it doesn't feel like an act of love in the moment, right? But church discipline, like, the, like the, one of the most ugly words in the, that I can think of is the word excommunication, right? It's such, a, it's such an ugly word. But excommunication if you think about it biblically, is actually an act of love because what, think about this, think about the church as a lifeboat in a sea of worldliness and the church as a lifeboat that is saving those within it in the midst of a world that is just churning and dark and, and anti-God. And so the church is this lifeboat and if someone in the church is, is rejecting the message of Jesus or is believing a heresy or is, or is a cancer to the truth of the gospel and they're creating discord and they're undermining the work of Christ, excommunication is to say to that person, you can no longer fellowship with us because because you're outside of bounds. So it's to put that person out of the lifeboat into the ocean. Not so they drown and die, so that they're in this ocean and they say, oh my God, oh my God, I have great motivation now to confess and repent and to right my wrong thinking that I may be, that I may be uh, uh, able to enter back into fellowship in the church and they're brought back into the lifeboat. So the kicking off the dust of the shoes is not just to say burn in hell to those cities. It's to say, no, 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 no. Life depends on your reception of this message. But I know it can be hard. I think about the series that we just did here at Heritage on giving the greatest gift. We, we talked about what it means to see the stranger as a neighbor and, and to invite the neighbor into our home where they become friend and then through the context of friendship to, to share the gospel message that, that our friends might become part of the family of God. We talked about personal mission, about evangelism. And this can be so hard because so much of it lives in this space. When we are doing mission, we are, we are leaving the comforts of, of our little Christian bubble and we are going into an unbelieving world as missionaries for Jesus. We're entering into unclean, scary places that make us feel very uncomfortable, that, that require us to be utterly dependent on God, and we have to do so in such a way that we reject worldliness and we don't let it infuse us and become part of us and pull us into it. And that is so hard. I think about this, 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 this spectrum that exists between embracing and celebrating sin that God abhors. I see that happening oftentimes in the name of, of love or in the name of Jesus. No, we're going to celebrate this sin behavior because God loves everybody. And, we're not, and, we, and we just sit back with a smile on our face as people are on a highway to hell because we, we refuse to call people to, to, uh, to lovingly recall them to confession and repentance. 
The other side of the spectrum is to say to the world, you are the enemy. And God damn you. And I don't want to, don't, don't make my, don't, I don't want to get my feet dirty, my hands dirty. I don't want to interact with you. You're the enemy. So I'm going to live my little Christian bubble and, and the world can just go to hell. And those are the two ends of the spectrum that are, they're both an offense to the Lord. What I see here in Jesus telling his disciples to go into the world, this unbelieving world, you're the light, you're believers, it is your belief, it's your faithfulness that is going to win the unbelievers. So go into that world and you're utterly dependent on me every step of the way. It's going to be super painful, but I'm with you. It's going to be uncomfortable. And do not, do not embrace worldliness. Reject it every step of the way. And this is the call upon the church that wants to live on mission. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans 10. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear with someone preaching without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Jesus sends these men out two by two into the mission field. He is fighting faithless unbelief through those with faithful belief. His, his little ambassadors of Christ, little flashlights of the gospel, little granules of salt into a saltless world. He's sending them out. And they are to embrace dependency on, on God. They are to, to embrace the reality of discomfort because this world is not their home. And they are to reject worldliness. And what's the result of all of this? Well, we see finally in verses 12 and 13 that Jesus gives success to those sent. Jesus gives success to those sent. Not worldly success, but godly success. Look at verses 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So you see this, this, this interesting relationship between faithfulness and fruitfulness. These disciples are not responsible for fruitfulness. That is a work of God. Only God brings fruit. They're responsible for their faithful response to his instruction. So in obedience, they are, they are faithful to what God has asked them to do, and they go out into an unbelieving world as, as believers, and they, they proclaim that people should repent. And because they were representatives of Jesus who were given his authority, they cast out many demons, they anoint many with oil who are sick, and there were healings that took place. God worked in and through them for this season of time in which he commissioned them. He used the faithfulness of those 12 to do a mighty work among many. The 12 experienced great, the great power of God in bringing the gospel to the unbelieving world. It has nothing to do with them or their personal charisma. It has everything to do with the one who sent them. No doubt it was difficult. No doubt they were rejected. No doubt it was uncomfortable. No doubt there were days they fell to their knees and turned their face to heaven and screamed in dependence upon God. But in faithful obedience, as we think about this as the church and as believers today, in faithful obedience, we are representatives of Jesus. That's the job of the church. We are to put ourselves in a position to be used by God. And as believers being sent into an unbelieving world, it is our very witness, it is our very testimony, it is our, 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 our very uh, being sent out that combats and fights against the unbelief of the world. It's not going to be easy. We will have to be dependent on God throughout. We'll often be met with dis discomfort. The world will reject us, but we are to be the light of the world. And so as I think about that, and I think about us today, the first Sunday of 2022, as we look at the year ahead, uh, as I think about us as individuals sitting here today, each one of us is our own life, and we all have our own relationship with God. There's some of us here that have been walking with Jesus for, for years and decades, and there's some of us in this room that are seeking. We've never, we haven't yet made a decision to call Jesus Lord of our life, and there's everybody who's in between. There's some of us that are mature in Christ, and, and we're serving him in, in, in ministry on a regular basis, and there's some of us in this room who have no idea what it means to be used by God for his glory, but we're trying to figure that out we're all here today. We're all in a different place. I, I don't know where you may be today, but I wonder what it would look like in your life individually, in your life as a family, in our life as a church, what it would look like for us as a church to authentically and thoroughly embrace dependence. I wonder what it would look like for us to not run from discomfort, but embrace it. 
to say, God, make me uncomfortable for your glory. What would it look like for us as a church to roundly reject worldliness that just seeks to seep in to our churches? The unbelieving world is like a huge crab bucket and is doing everything it can to pull people down, to pull people down, to pull people down. And heck, there are many in the name of Jesus who are doing the same thing. There are many false teachers and and corrupt church leadership that are teaching false doctrines that keeps people swimming at the bottom of the crab bucket of this world, teaching worldliness as if it is the truth of God, showing lies that make self-sufficient independence the goal of life or lies that make comfort and ease the goal of life. These are lies that rot the soul and lead to death. What a tragedy. What a tragedy if the world were to confirm that. But Jesus has given his, his church some instructions. He's given his disciples some instructions today. We're going to take his message to an unbelieving world. Jesus is fighting unbelief through the faithfulness of true believers. He's given us this gospel message that lifts people out of, out of the depths and the death and the darkness of this world and brings them to Christ himself. Jesus fights faithless unbelief through those with faithful belief. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to, to gather here today and to open your word and study your word. Thank you for this text and God, I thank you for the, the last five weeks here at Heritage as we've, as we've looked at what, what it means for us to, uh, God, to, to give the greatest gift, to be, to be uh, missional in our, in our neighborhoods and in our homes and among our friends and in the world around us. God, I'm, I'm thankful that we were able today to get back in the book of, of Mark and, 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 and just see this moment where Jesus is um, sending these disciples, God. And that we can peer upon these faithful men some 2,000 years ago, and we can see the instructions of Jesus. And, and God, I do pray as we think about that and as we reflect on our own lives and the call you've placed on your church today, God, that we would, God, that you would use our faithful belief as, as followers of Jesus to combat and, and fight against and undo the unbelief of the world around us, God. I think of those in Southern Oregon and in Jackson County and the Rogue Valley here in Medford, God, the many people in our midst who just don't know you. God, they, they don't know the truth. God, would you send us out? God, help us know what it means that we are fully dependent on you. This is not our personal mission. It's your mission. You've invited us to be a part of what you're doing. God, help us do it in faithfulness. God, maybe not run from discomfort, but, but be okay with it. Embrace it even. And even in those moments of great discomfort, God, maybe just maybe experience your presence and your nearness in ways that we never would have had we not experienced the, the discomfort in our life. And God, I pray that you would guard our hearts against worldliness, God, that we wouldn't embrace things of this world, God, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you and you would use our church for your glory. God, we love you. We trust you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.